Bet365 sponsors our podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. And Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello, welcome to the Onstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we'll bring you exclusive insight and stories from David and our team of writers. Coming up today, with a week to go until the transfer window closing in the Premier League, David will tell us the transfers that could still happen. Our Manchester United writer, Laurie Whitwell, will join us to discuss the Jadon Sancho one and the Athletics match later. Updates us on the crisis faced by Football League clubs and the possibility of support from the Premier League. To read all the articles we discuss on today's podcast in full, simply head to www.theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up for just £1 a month. And subscribers to The Athletic can submit questions to David in the comments section of his weekly column. Just use hashtag AskOrnstein and he'll pick his favourites for his YouTube show and make sure you subscribe to the TIFO podcast YouTube channel. So we've got one more week of transfers to go. This is obviously reflected in your column. Plenty of transfer lines to go through. We record this on a Monday afternoon. So please bear this in mind if you're listening to it and are about to comment saying we've got this wrong or that's already happened. We're going to... Oh, now here's a surprise, David. We're starting with Arsenal, are we? That was not my choice. Really? Let me just put really, that on the record. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Although they will be one of the busiest teams potentially. So I think it's fair, to be honest. And and, and a lot of people I, I speak to in the game, they're keeping their eye on Arsenal this week because they've got a good thing going on with Arteta. And <laughs> to coin the sort of phrase we used to use when Arsene Wenger was in charge, one or two signings away from being a real force. And... You know, they've been pursuing these two midfielders to some degree all all summer. It was initially really Thomas Partey. That interest has stemmed a few years. Uh, Arsenal have liked him for a long time, decided not to commit the sort of money it would take the previous summer because they went for Nicola Pepe in a different position and then strengthened in defence as well. Uh, They did bring in Lucas Torreira uh, 2018, I think that was hasn't worked out and now they do want Thomas Partey we know all about that but it's a 50 million euros release clause it needs to be paid in full he's got very high wage demands the agent's fees would be considerable as well so if the deal's not right for Arsenal on that one they're not going to do it they're not going to make what you could say is mistakes of the past by overpaying and being fixated on just one particular player and that's why they do have backup options if that's not possible. And then Hussein Mawa from Lyon who we've also read all about in, in recent days and weeks. Uh, Arsenal really fond of him. I understand he would like to come to Arsenal and the negotiations have been very cordial between the two Brazilians, Arsenal's technical director Edu and Lyon's sporting director Janinho. There have been a lot of public comments from Jean-Michel Orlas, the Lyon president, but I don't think that has disrupted things behind the scenes and it's whether Lyon, who are in a 
pretty sticky financial situation and I'm told that they need to sell uh, except what Arsenal are able to propose and I don't know exactly what Arsenal's financial situation is going into this final week and whether it's contingent on freeing up space in the squad and also finances but that's going to be a really interesting one I, I get the sense that maybe Awar is becoming slightly more likely than party because of those complications mentioned but it, it is one that I'm not willing to call. There are no guarantees. And as we said, there are backup options. You don't know exactly financially what Arsenal need to do as in moving players out. But but you'd have thought just from not having a bloated squad, they would they would need to ship a couple out if, yeah. if they were going to bring in both party an hour. Yeah, definitely. They need to move players on the likes of Lucas Torreira, Matteo Guendouzi, Socrates potentially some loan deals for young players. We mentioned uh, Reese Nelson might be one who goes out on loan. Uh, we said that on the YouTube video last week. Squad space is an issue. The finances, uh, when I said I'm not sure about that, I don't know whether we would see some backing from the ownership. We haven't in the past in terms of financial input, but they have put mechanisms and instruments in place to allow greater spending. We saw that with Nicola Pepe. Uh, we know that Arsenal's debt Stadium debt was refinanced to allow them greater flexibility in the transfer market. It's not right for me to start pontificating over the exact finances when we just we just don't know exactly how that would work. But the fact that they are in contention for these sorts of players suggests that there is some flexibility. There will need to be some outgoings. Whether it's before or after, I don't think it really matters with a week to go. If there are players going, then you kind of need to be pretty sure about it by now. It's going to be really interesting because I, I think Arsenal will want to come away with one one of those players uh, the dream scenario I'm sure would be both but as I said they're not going to sort of overstretch themselves and be fixated and and get taken advantage of in the market okay for the 17th transfer window on the trot Tottenham are looking for a backup to Harry Kane yeah, I don't know where Fernando Llorente is at the moment, uh, but there may be a knock on his door to come back to Spurs. Um, you know, it's Janssen, interesting. The, remember Janssen? <laughs> yeah, of Janssen course. There, yeah, Soldado, etc. But the, yeah. the, the interesting thing with that position now is that I could see a backup striker playing quite a bit more than previous incumbents because we know about Kane's injury record in the last couple of years Son now looks to have a hamstring problem and they needed a backup striker before that anyway so you know we talked about previous interest in Ollie Watkins ahead of his move to Aston Villa and that shows that they were perhaps in the market for somebody you know a bit younger than normal somebody who would play more games in the various competitions uh, they've got Gareth Bale when he comes back to fitness of course as an attacking option but I'm told there are potential scenarios in in uh, various different leagues uh, Spain Italy and, and England uh, one that's been linked not for the first time is is Josh King at Bournemouth we'll see because Bournemouth I think have bought in all the money they needed for this particular transfer window in in the sales already with Callum Wilson, Nathan Ake and then obviously Ryan Fraser left on a free but they will hold out for a, a decent offer and, and I think King will be sweating on a move because he would have imagined one would have taken place. It will need to be the right price for Bournemouth. So yeah, Tottenham a backup for Harry Kane and potentially a centre-half as well. We know that they're in some sort of discussions for Milan Skriniar of Inter Milan but that's another complicated one. Inter will want... Uh, a sale for a 
decent fee in excess of 40 million euros plus add-ons I was told and which is lower than he was initially on the market for because we talked about him in January for sort of 70 odd million maybe even higher if it's a loan it would need I think to be with an obligation for Milan into Milan to even consider it whereas Spurs might be looking for a loan with an option there will be other options for Spurs at centre-back as well so yeah busy busy time on on that side of North London as well. You talk about Gareth Bale. Gareth Bale's quite a good example for Ryan Sessegnon about mm. how you maybe have to take your time. At t- well, you have to take your time at any club, really. And if it doesn't work out right at the start, that doesn't mean it won't work out in the future. Bearing that in mind, if he's going to leave Sessegnon, would you expect it to be on loan rather than permanently? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, 25 million outlay from Fulham, young England youth international um, with, from what I can see, bags of potential. It hasn't quite worked out yet. There was a change in manager pretty soon after he joined with Maurizio Pochettino leaving, Jose Mourinho coming in. I think he was attracted by the idea of playing and being developed by Pochettino, although Mourinho did try and sign Sessegnon previously in his career and he's had very little game time. I don't see Daniel Levy wanting to sell him, so it would be a loan. And that's, again, another one that's um, slightly complex because those clubs that are looking at him, the likes of Brighton, Southampton, Hertha Berlin, maybe Ajax, although they're struggling to shift Tagliafico, so I'm not sure that one's going to happen, but would want a loan with an option to buy Sessignon and... As indicated there, Daniel Levy wouldn't want to give that option. He would just want him to go on loan and get game time. So I do think a loan will happen before the deadline for Sessignon. And um, and it's one that spurs on the long term. And, and without meaning to stir anything here, we don't know what will happen with the managerial position. We've seen Mourinho at other clubs and many people don't think that is a match made in heaven. So there doesn't seem much point in getting rid of a prodigious talent like Sessignon on a permanent basis. And speaking of prodigious talents, some will leave Liverpool, you would expect, and that could be permanently, that could be on loan as well. Yeah, Rian Brewster, I think, is most likely to be permanent, actually, which would come as a surprise to many. And and I'm not saying it's going to happen, but the conversations at the moment with the likes of Sheffield United, Aston Villa, Crystal Palace, I think have been geared around a permanent deal. I think they're judging the valuation sort of pretty much in line with what they sold Dominic Solanke to Bournemouth for, which I think was around 16 million plus 3 million in add-ons, so around 19 million pounds. And look, it's it's impossible at Liverpool to breach that front three at the moment. And so somebody like Brewster who wants to be playing, does he want to go out on loan again when Liverpool could generate some pretty significant money for him? And then Harry Wilson, another who's been out on loan um, and seemed to be, you know, flying in his early career, but now is being linked with a move away from Liverpool. Again, that competition for places just might block the path of somebody like him. There were some inquiries from Burnley. Um, I don't think they've really progressed. So we'll see in the final week because Leeds previously were in for him right at the start of the transfer window. But I don't think Marcelo Bielsa was favouring that signing. So yeah, Liverpool more on the outgoings than incomings before the deadline. Well, we'll have more transfer news uh, later in the pod. Our United writer, Laurie Whitwell, will join us. I think you know who he'll be talking about. (laughs) Now, wouldn't it be great if every clothing store you shopped at had only your size, the styles you like, everything at the price you want? Well, Stitch Fix is a company that is focused on doing just that. It's an online 
personal styling company that makes getting the clothes you love simple. It's a completely different way to shop and it is all about you. To get started, just go to stitchfix.co.uk slash athletic to set up your profile and then they'll deliver great looks that are personalised just for you. You'll pay a £10 styling fee for each fix and that is credited towards anything you keep. Schedule at any time and there's no subscription. Delivery and returns are completely free and easy, so you can always send back items that aren't right for you. To get started with Stitch Fix today, go to stitchfix.co.uk slash athletic right now. stitchfix.co.uk slash athletic. Well, away from the transfer window now and a deal for the Premier League to support lower league clubs during the coronavirus pandemic could be reached this coming week, according to the Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden. Let's speak to the Athletics' Matt Slater. So are EFL club executives relieved? This has been a huge debate for the last few weeks. I would certainly say last week they were getting very, very nervous, upset, angry, some of them frustrated. A lot of them don't actually need the money right now. I mean, there are some that really do need the money right now. Um, And they were, to be honest with you, a lot of the clubs that were in trouble before we'd even heard of COVID-19 But most of the clubs, particularly in Leagues 1 and League 2, where they have brought the salary cap in and where they're able to furlough, they feel that they can sort of get us through till February, March-ish. You know, they have budgeted accordingly. But what they all need is a sense of some certainty. They definitely all want money. They definitely all need to fill. If we're not going to have fans, that's the crucial point to make here. If If it really does look like we could be behind closed doors until you know March-ish, there is a hole. Match day revenue becomes more and more important the further you go down the pyramid. It's obviously just not just tickets, though of course that's a huge part of it. It's food and beverage. League One and League Two clubs sell a lot of their merchandise around match days. It's the fact that their sponsors are local, so therefore they are more focused on people in the ground. What they need now is a clear message, an agreement that the hole will be filled and how it will be filled. Now, if you're in the EFL, Anyone, all of us, right? We'd much rather have a grant than a loan. So that's the first point. You know, can we have this money? Government is sort of saying to kind of every sector, everything from from aviation to fishing to you name what, to high street retail. Look, there's a finite amount of money. We've 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 gone with the the furlough scheme. We've we've organised um, tax windows. Eat out to help out was obviously a massive intervention in the in the sort of leisure industry. We can't just dish out cash to everyone. We we can do what we can. We'll try and work with you. And I think we have seen in other sectors uh, low interest loans. Now the government feels that football makes enough money, and this is where you get this debate really around transfer spending in the Premier League and this sort of it's been going on since the beginning hasn't it this sort of almost sniping at football you know you're pleading poverty one minute but then we know how many you know players you're you're buying and these fabulous sums of money and you've got these great stadiums and look at the cars you drive and it gets it, it can get really petty and nasty and I know people in football get really annoyed you know why are you singling us out we're not the only wealthy sector out there and Yes, Premier League clubs make a lot of money, but we have huge expenditure and we drive a lot of revenue, not just around our towns, but uh, UK PLC, we're a fantastic export around the world. You know, people get into talks about um, soft power and just, you know, things that that make the UK stand out. The Premier League would be one of those. And generate huge tax. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, lots of research has been done on that. So 
it get, it, you get this sort of debate, we're kind of going sniping at each other, going backwards and forwards. Well, you know, you just spent 50 million on a player. Well, of course, you spent 50 million on a player because, you know, we have to put an amazing product on the field. We're competing internationally. The fact that we buy good players, that's why people in Asia are watching. That's why, you know, NBC in the States pays a lot of money to watch our stuff. If we stopped doing that, we lose our USP. The money we make does flow down the pyramid. So everything is connected. It really is. And I think what we're heading towards is sort of a government not wanting to be seen, well, not wanting to dish out money to every sector, not wanting to dish out money to a sector that is perceived to be wealthy, but realising that the situation in the Premier League doesn't really apply to the situation in League Two. You know, I haven't even mentioned National yet. I think National League probably will get a handout. That would be more like the handout that Rugby League got because they don't have fabulous TV revenue. It really is match day for them. But I think where we're heading with the EFL and the Premier League is some sort of giant low interest loan. And I mean big. It could be a billion quid that will fill everybody's match day hole for this season and last. How are they going to give that money back if it's a loan? <laughs> well, that's a really, really good question. I think it will be very long term. It'll be the similar, similar idea to your mortgage. You know, where you buy, where you borrow a, a large sum of money, uh, it'll be guaranteed, I think, by the Premier League's broadcast income because that is the best. That's the best income that anyone in football, anyone in professional sport, really has, and that will get you hopefully a, a low interest rate and generous terms. And that's that. I think is the best we can hope for. Can I just pick up on something in the more immediate term? Some of the EFL clubs that I've spoken to say, as you point out, that certain clubs are dealing with this in a responsible way, cutting their cloth accordingly, but others took advantage of the money that was forwarded from the Premier League advanced and they've spent heavily on salaries and in some cases signings and that it's a ticking time bomb when the money that was going to be coming in January they realise has already been paid, there's no January payment and if it's not for this bailout, which which is controversial in itself because some EFL clubs don't want those big spenders to be bailed out, um, that there could be a, a real stark pick for certain clubs who have maybe not acted as responsibly as others. We get this at the best of time you know where where, you know clubs are sort of briefing against each other and there's a sort of sense well look we've been responsible but they haven't over there and you know the, the picture I get is broadly speaking clubs have been responsible but mm-hmm. this is where I think this is where the last couple of weeks where the rhetoric has really stepped up is that it was the hope that got them. They really did believe that they would be able to get some fans back in. And they'd put a lot of work into it. Yes. Let's, let's not, and, and this is partly financial, but partly the work that they've put in to being able to, to do this in the same way that your local pub and restaurant has have put their rules in place and have made themselves COVID secure in the same way that your supermarket has tried to make itself covid secure that's what the football clubs were doing they weren't just going to you know open their doors and randomly let a thousand people in the the planning and the care that had gone into it and i think that certainly from the people that i've heard from that is where a massive amount of the frustration comes from because they believe in the main that they could have delivered this safely including getting fans to and from the ground i couldn't agree more something that came up a few times last week in conversations was we, look, we're having this dialogue with government. That is true. DCMS, the, the department responsible for sport, you know, are being helpful. We are having a good, what they thought was a fruitful conversation with them. 
But they felt we've, we've done everything that's asked of us. We've, we've run successful pilots. That is the evidence they should be looking at. Not, I don't know, stuff based on, on last year or the season before or just guesswork about large crowds. And there is this sense in football that we are really good at managing crowds. Think about what we do. We're good at it. And we have drawn up plans, not in a rush, We've drawn it up with the government agency responsible for this, the Sports Ground Safety Authority. We've been uh, engaging with uh, stewards and local authorities. We re- they genuinely believed that they could do it safely. It would be much safer than going to watch a game in a pub on telly. That you know you could easily get to 25, 30, 35 percent capacities in grounds, and they still feel that, and they're still annoyed about it. As some of the lower league clubs having a dilemma here, Matt, about the cost of making their ground COVID secure, especially in areas which have got high COVID rates. I don't know, take Rochdale, for example, versus the price or the the income they would receive by having people through the turnstiles. Well, it was close for a few. Yeah, you're right. It varies from club to club because every stadium is different and the local conditions are different, of course, as well. And just common sense would suggest that if you can only go to about 25%, well, it's going to be more marginal than if you could get to 35. Though, of course, it's not as simple as that because some grounds are just really, really small in terms of their footprint, how much space they have outside, what their concourses look like. Just that it's the same as a supermarket, right? It's the same at school. You need that one-way flow to avoid mingling um, and anyone will, will be able to imagine their own stadium and thinking, well, how's that going to work? Moving it on from, from fans back into Grasslands, but but it's still a, a COVID question. I mean, you wrote exclusively last week that EFL clubs are considering random COVID-19 tests for clubs. Mm. There, I suppose there are a couple of things there. Why random <laughs> and how will they afford it? If you think about Project Restart, when the championship resumed and, and finished and we had League One and League Two playoffs. They were doing, you know, the same sort of testing as the Premier League, right? So at the time I think it was twice a week and we've kind of moved to once a week now uh, in the Premier League. 99% plus of those were coming back negative. They were doing lots and lots of testing. It was very, very expensive and they got advice and the advice was, well, look, if you are all following the protocols and they are, you know, about staying in your little bubbles and um, washing your hands regularly and turning up um, ready dressed and, and, and just the, the, the rules on this are huge they're all on the OFL website if you want to look at them pages and pages of the stuff again you know that that level of thought and detail that professional football clubs have put into this if you are doing all those things then we don't really see the point of you continuing to test unless there's really really good reason unless there's been a breakdown so don't test be more like the rest of us. You know, if, if you if there's symptoms, if there's something, if there's a reason to ask for a test, ask for a test. But we don't routinely need to keep doing it. And of course, that was really, really important for the EFL clubs to hear that because they couldn't afford it, frankly. You know, to do a sort of round of testing, you know, it depends how many you're testing, how big your group is. But it's, it starts at 5,000. It can go, uh, you know, a week and can go and can go up from there, depending if you're testing, you know, your youth teams and how many coaches you want. But but it's a very, very, very onerous burden. So they, they stopped doing it. They, they announced they were going to stop doing it. They didn't sneakily do it. They just said they were going to stop doing it. Now, last week was a disaster for this because um, we probably had our first serious breakout um, at Orient where things went badly wrong 
17, 18 players test positive. And there's investigations going on there, including a public health England investigation as to what happened. Because that that's akin to, you know, a breakout of a university hall of residence or something. That's that's a that's a pretty, pretty significant breakout there. And then there were there was there were smaller ones at other clubs. So it was a bad week to for for, for an organization to not be testing. Although the reason not to test was perfectly again reasonable and was thought through, it just collapsed last week. So a response to that is, okay, right, sorry guys, everyone's testing again. Well, then you have the money issue. Right, okay, how then do we ensure compliance with the protocols? So it's almost taking a, an anti-doping approach to it. We're going to randomly test because it's cheaper when what we want you all to do is to really follow those safety protocols. Those safety protocols are absolutely essential if this is going to be sustainable, surely, Matt. I mean, there was one League Two club I was speaking to who said that their travel to away matches is now costing them around £2,000 extra because for the first time in their history, they're having to stay in hotels where every player needs their own room as opposed to doubling up, which they've always done in the past. I hear that. Um, two coaches, you know, more vehicles to create some space. Yeah, exactly. The added costs of playing professional sport right now during this during this period are, are, are significant. But this is, I think this goes back to what that frustration from sport. We're doing it. We've been doing it for a few months now. And by and large, it's gone well. Please help us, continue to help us help ourselves. You know, we, we, we are trying and we're doing it pretty well. And that's why I think this whole issue around the fans caused so much upset. From my experience in, in rugby league as well, that uh, safety protocol, it's one thing trying to abide by the safety protocol if you are a Premier League footballer and your financial situation is comfortable. But... With as the same with rugby league players, if you're a league two player and are on a a, a average wage, an average living wage, let's say maybe a little bit more, but you, your family still needs to work. Your your partner may go out to work. Your wife may go out to work. They might work in in an industry and they might work in a school, for example, where there might be a greater chance of of, of contracting COVID through contact with obviously thousands thousands of children. It's one thing having the safety protocol there, but sometimes family circumstances demand that you might be put at risk through actually the necessity of having to earn a living. Again, I, I agree. And look, it's almost sort of like the more normal your life is, the greater your, your risks are, yeah. right? You know, yeah. So September was always going to be tricky right, for, for this country because off the back of the summer, kids going back to school, students going to university, as we've been hearing in the news for the last few days, uh, us being encouraged to go back to our offices – Normal life was sort of meant to resume or as close to normal as we could get. Well, look, it was, I don't, I don't think you need to be a genius to work out, you know what, we might, we might get a bit of a, a spike here. We might get a reverse in the, in the trend. And so it's come to pass. Football feels, football feels a bit hard done by, I think, on this. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. Take care. No problem at all. See you guys. Harry's sponsors the Ornstein and Chapman podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five blade brands. I can vouch for that, and with football coming back, if you're anything like me and could do with sharpening up your appearance, 
give them a go. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close and comfortable shave. As a listener of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash Ornstein right now. That's harrys.com forward slash Ornstein. Well, also in your transfer focus column this week, David, you talk about Manchester United's pursuit of Oh, this is a new story of Jaden Sancho. <laughs> um, uh, when, when did we launch this podcast? He's probably featured on one in every two podcasts. I think probably more, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not a dig at our editorial policy. It is no. just the fact that Manchester United seems to have been pursuing That's a saga. Jaden's. That really qualifies as a saga. <laughs> Well, let's let's bring in our United writer, Laurie Whitwell, mm. who must love to get the call on a Monday when we record this. <laughs> Can you come on and talk about Jaden and Sancho? It, it's marvellous. I, I sort of wait <laughs> with bated breath by the phone, eagerly anticipating it. So thank you for filling my dreams. I've got to admit, I, I did think that this week it was going to be the pursuit is over. I was actually quite surprised when we called around and... And it was, no, you know, it's still open. And whether that, obviously Dortmund have a different view, but whether that Mm. is true or not from United's perspective, the fact that we're being told that it's not dead at this point, even though United are pursuing other targets in parallel, I think it's pretty extraordinary that this hasn't been put to bed one way or the other just yet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we knew, you know, from the closing weeks of of last season that Jadon Sancho was going to be United's main target this summer. And I wrote a piece the day that United beat Leicester and qualified for the Champions League that clearly meant United's finances would be boosted and said that the task now was to go and sign Jaden Sancho and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wanted that done promptly. And it's now, you know, two, two and a half months after that point and it's been sort of dragging on. I know United have their own view on why that is the case in terms of the talks being, uh, you know, discussed through intermediaries and, and progressing slower than they would like. But then again, they've also got their own history with transfer first being dragged out Harry Maguire last summer Bruno Fernandes in January so it's certainly uh, something that can be scrutinised and has you know infuriated or or, or rather frustrated a lot of people that that are close to the club I kind of feel we could go in about 120 different directions with this let's just deal with the um the intermediary side of the negotiations. Now, now other clubs use intermediaries. What I think is quite interesting is there, there was an article on on Sky Sports the last few days talking about United losing the dark arts of transfers. And I'm reading Alex Ferguson's book on, on the moment, not on autobiography, the one that he did on on management and and leading. And he talks about how he would pursue players and target players. And that doesn't involve intermediaries. That involves maybe teammates talking to a target on international duty or the manager himself talking, you know, the personal touch. And I wonder whether United have got themselves into such a mess over so many transfers because there is no personal touch and it is all through intermediaries. We're going to mention director of football here, aren't we, Laurie? (laughs) Well, that's... (laughs) 
Well, that would be that. That is the you know. It always seems to come back to that where you've got the you know somebody there that could be proactive and, and that is their sole job. You know, to grease the wheels on these kind of things and, and have a human uh, football touch to it. Because United, the people that do United's deals obviously come from a banking background. It's a different background, and uh, you know, as Patrice ever mentioned in an Instagram post, you know, sometimes it's lawyers that go and and, and as you say, chap, is that that personal sort of human football side um, is it is it all there? I'm led to believe that actually with with Sancho there have been you know those personal touches you know without wanting to kind of you know speak too freely on it I think there have been people from the club from the football side of things that have been in touch you know to sort of say listen this is a place for you um, which you know goes on in, in pretty much all transfers could United's the people that do these deals you know Edward would Matt Judge could they just get in a room with Michael Zork and sort the deal out you know face to face you know the, the information that we get is that actually Dortmund's preference is for it to be done through agents so what reason is that possibly because um, they can have the control of, 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 the, of the narrative to some degree you know they've said that August 10th was their deadline and they that's what that's where they're sticking to end of discussions well actually if there's someone working on behalf of uh, a deal that isn't actually you know uh, employed by Dortmund then that can still progress in the background so they have sort of you know uh, plausibility in that regard so that's you know one sort of view of it another is just that United could they not just have paid the money when Dortmund wanted you know um, it was obvious what the, the price was United might think that's too much money but then again if they knew that then th- th- move on yeah then kill it then kill it and that and and I think that's one of their big problems here is that if there are problems with the deal if there's a problem with intermediaries and what they might want from the deal financially if there's a problem with the price tag that Dortmund are asking and you are going we are not paying that for him we are not paying intermediaries or whatever the finances on this are not right for us if they came out why do they not come out and say that because there would be a lot of people who go okay then Fair enough. There's always still that temptation that the player is an opportunity that they just don't want to turn down and they want to try and find a way to make it happen. On Laurie's original point from Dortmund's perspective, if their view was, we don't want to sell him, we don't have to sell him, and it's you that wants to sign the player, you guys go and try and structure the deal. Maybe that's, I'm not saying it is the case, but perhaps that's a theory why it's been left to United and the intermediaries. You thrash it out among yourselves, you know what we would do, but we're not interested in selling this player. We see him as part of our plans for the next year. And then it's that temptation that this is perhaps a generational talent that United don't want to miss out on if they can get him in this summer because there's a good chance, not guaranteed, but there's a good chance that other big clubs will be at the table next summer and you don't want to miss that opportunity. I don't know. I don't think it's as clear cut as we think on the outside. United would certainly say that if there's a chance of doing the deal, he's the number one target. We've, you know, we as, a, as United have shown previously that we've gone for our number one target and got them. Um, so why don't we try it with him until the very sort of last moment? But I think just with the history of what United have, have done in, in the market that you don't quite have the confidence that, that they will sort of come out of this in the, the morosiest of glow, I suppose. True, and I can hear Chappers starting to laugh, but it, and I'm not trying to side with I, United. I, I, no, I, was, I was laughing. I was laughing at the... Uh, and I, obviously, because Laurie <laughs> Dredd's coming on the podcast and say all the time because he has all, all his contacts to protect. But it, it's they don't quite have the confidence, which, which I was sniggering at because... But- I think there were a lot of fans who would say we definitely don't have any confidence, let alone don't quite have confidence. Okay, well, two two points. United have not had a bad recent record in the transfer market. 
firstly. And secondly, they're not unique in being involved in a saga this summer that appears to be going down to the wire. You'll laugh at me for bringing Arsenal into it, but someone like Party and Awar and other clubs, someone like, I don't know, Declan Rice, if that rumbles on until until the final minute, that's something that's been mentioned throughout. Okay, Sancho's the most high profile of those, but, you know, have United if done De- so hang badly? On, if De- the- if, hang on, hang on. If Declan Rice rumbles on until, until deadline day... Declan Rice is rumbling on to deadline day to a club who have already brought, you know, spent 250, 300 million pounds worth of players coming in already this summer. So, so what, so their final one rumbling on would be understandable. Yeah, but there's no Hmm. right or wrong to this. Chelsea haven't had an amazing start to the season. United, you know. You could say similar, but they have bought in Van der Beek, who who I'm sure is going to be an excellent signing. Maguire, Fernandez over the last year, Wambasaka. It is the frustration that it's it's uh, it's dragging on, and there's not that proactive, you know, practice sense about United in their movements. Um, you know, okay, Sancho's too expensive, right? We're moving on. They would say, you know, as, as long as there's a chance, there's, there's a reason for us to keep sort of having these discussions. There's a, a great interview uh, with former United defender Rafael on the Athletic. He's been talking yeah. to Adam. Crafter. I'm going back. I'm going back to the personal touch, really, because he does in that interview chart the decline of of the human touch. I think mm. at United once Ferguson went, and that's not just in transfers. That's in dealing with with players as well. He talk, I mean, he talks in that about being in tears when Ferguson told everybody in the dressing room that he was retiring. That for me is more pertinent than a lot of what we've discussed so far. When I read that interview, it just struck me with taking a step back in the context of of the last however many years 2013 wasn't it that Ferguson left that you know they've been through the Moyes period Van Gaal Giggs Mourinho and he gets straight to the heart of the matter on culture and where's the stewardship here from Manchester United and I know there was a transition at executive level as well with David Gill handing the bat on over to Ed Woodward Uh, we see so much conversation around Woodward Matt Judge uh, and and a couple of others involved at, at that level as well but Really now, are we some of the problems at Old Trafford, and and I, I do personally think that, however you interpret this, and however quickly as well, I do think they are moving in slightly the right direction. They're clearly not at the level Manchester United would expect to be, and that feels to me to be something cultural. Yeah, there's the competition from other clubs, but this is Manchester United, and that interview, I think hits home just how much they've lost their way the fact that he talks about Ferguson you know sending his family uh, flowers it's that kind of stuff isn't it the little yeah. little touches maybe that, that are quite uh, quite nice and, and I think Solskjaer does have that about him I do think yes, he gets he involved I do think yep. he, he he takes a, a personal approach to all the transfers but he also has to get results on the pitch so you know really his primary focus is is picking a team you know planning ahead and, and, and getting a squad getting a squad of players together to, to win football matches and, and you know achieving United's goals so really that's why we always come back to this director of football situation where you're talking about who could be there with a football background to look at the long-term sort of squad development because Solskjaer knows who he wants and I'm sure he's got very clear ideas but then to actually go and execute those plans is another task entirely because you've got you know you've got players there that are on hundreds of thousand pounds a week that aren't being used that aren't going to be used and United are currently negotiating possible sales possible loans out of the club but as they're dragging on as well you know the difference in say Chris Smalling 
going to Roma or not, I know they're haggling over the price and, and you know, fair enough that United want to get a certain value from him. But at, at some point, Chris Smalling is not going to be a player that Solskjaer uses very much going forward, whatever happens. So you're actually, you're stopping yourself from getting that value from him and the wages that you then, you know, um, shift on to another club that you could then be used for Jaden Sancho, for example. So if you're quicker with selling Smalling, you could be quicker with buying Jaden Sancho. I mean, that is the that is another criticism of them is that the not only do they struggle to smoothly buy players, they also struggle to smoothly sell players as well, really. Lukaku seems to be one of the most simple ones that they've managed to, to sell in, in recent years. And that was late. And that was late, yeah. I'm not going to put this um, cynically. I'm just going to ask it straight. <laughs> I could put it in cynical terms, but are you expecting them to bring anybody else in before the window shuts? I think they will. I mean, I just think that they've they've done you know a lot of work. They have been having these talks. You know, they do speak to a lot of different agents and players. Alex Tellis one, um, as we found out on Talk of the Devils podcast last week from uh, Mrs. Andy Mitten. Um, it's that's how it's pronounced, Alex Tellis. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, the talks are ongoing there. I could see that one happening. Um, although it does seem a slightly odd position to strengthen left back, albeit you know there's. Luke Shaw's always, you know, had kind of critiques of, of his abilities, uh, but you've got Brandon Williams there, you know, as well. It seems a, an odd position to strengthen if they do go for it, although maybe it's just that they've been offered this player and that's a deal that they can do fairly straightforwardly. So there's Andres Pereira uh, in talks over a loan with Lazio. Um, that could happen, as I mentioned, Chris Smalling with Roma. Um, but you've also got Marcus Rojo, Sergio Romero, who are not going to be around the first team, really. Phil Jones, um, who may just end up staying, you you know, uh, and and it, you know having to be managed in that way. Um, I, I do think United will make signings. I think it's inconceivable that they don't bring in the right-sided attacker. It's been su- yeah. such a priority for them f- for the entire window, not only as the first choice but the backup options that we've spoken so much about as well. So it'd be a, it'd be a surprise to me if they didn't finish the window with a new left back and a right-sided player, whether it's on loan or permanent I agree I think the right side of uh, you know winger position if it's not Sancho I can see a, a stopgap for a year and then they, mm-hmm. they look at it again uh, you know reassess you know perhaps in January or, or next summer uh, well you've cheered me up no end as ever Laurie uh, <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for coming on uh, thanks, plenty, plenty more writing from Laurie on The Athletic he also co-hosts the United podcast Talk of the Devils cheers Laurie this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Thanks very much for listening. Next week, we'll round up everything that has happened during this transfer window. So we'll see you then.